More or less, I have read 2,000 of your issues. <laughs> and I was telling this to my wife yesterday. And she goes, you know, I think you spend more time with Jared's thoughts than with mine. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is your host, Adam Rosh, and I want to thank you for joining me. For this episode of Conversations, we venture into the world of finance and speak with Jared Dillian. Jared is truly a fascinating guy with incredible insights into the world. I first came across his insights after reading an expose about him in the New York Times back in 2011. You see, Jared worked as a trader at Lehman Brothers starting back in 2001, just weeks before the terrorist attacks of 9-11. He started with Lehman as an index arbitrage trader and then as head of the ETF or exchange traded fund desk. During this time, he routinely traded over 1 billion, that's billion with a B, a day in volume. His tenure lasted seven years and ended with a front row seat into the financial industry's collapse and Lehman Brothers' shocking bankruptcy. After the financial collapse, instead of seeking a new position with one of the big financial firms, Jared started his own publishing business called The Daily Dirt Nap. And it's from The Daily Dirt Nap that I've come to know Jared so well. The Daily Dirt Nap is a three-page newsletter that is delivered to me by email each morning and has helped shape my beliefs, not just about finance, but really life in general. And, you know, honestly, it is pure gold. In fact, other than reading the New York Times every morning since 1996, something that I'm proud uh, to have done, uh, there's nothing I've read more consistently or with more anticipation than Dillian's The Daily Dirt Nap. He's been described as one of the industry's most original, entertaining, and contrarian voices and is referred to as the Dr. House of Trading. His readership is wide-ranging, from casual investors to professional traders and hedge fund managers and even emergency medicine physicians like myself. And Dillian has published much more than just the Daily Dirt Nap. He also publishes The Tenth Man, which has the motto, it is a duty of the tenth man to disagree. I love that motto, which takes a very different spin on the financial markets. And it's also one of my favorite publications and one that I encourage you to try out because it's free. So you could get a taste of Dillian's work without paying a dime. Other newsletter publications of Dillian's include ETF 2020 and Street Freak. So I encourage you, try some of his free stuff. And if you like it, perhaps you could venture into the uh, premium material. So beyond the newsletter publications, Dillian has also authored two books. His first, Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers, was described by Bloomberg as a disturbingly candid memoir about a poor kid who quit the U.S. Coast Guard to chase his dream of becoming a trader. And Publishers Weekly described it as 
Uh, Dillian offers a candid look at the demise of a corporate behemoth. Dillian's second book, All the Evils in the World, has been described as a riveting tale of a high-stakes options trade gone bad, or good, depending on each of his many memorable characters' perspectives. This novel is a finely wrought study of the people who pull the levers behind the curtain of the markets. And even after all this, I have one more endorsement of Dillian's work. He's truly diverse in what he puts out. Jared started a personal finance talk show on smart radio and WCGO called The Jared Dillian Show. And if you are a fan of like Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman, I got to tell you that Dillian really blows these guys out of the water. His perspective is so unique, but really just so wonderful to hear. It's fresh and really helpful. You can listen and even call in live, which I've done Monday through Friday from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'll include the links to the show in the show notes here. So as you could see, Jared truly has the he's the rare ability that combines sheer volume of writing and speaking with crisp, intelligent, and interesting ideas. And I have to tell you that his work never lets me down and always keeps me thoroughly engaged. So it was really wonderful to be able to speak with Jared Dillian. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Jared Dillian. All right. Welcome to the show, Jared Dillian. Thank you for taking the time and joining me here today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So, you know, in preparing for this interview, I was doing some background on how you first came into my life, believe it or not. And I had to go through my Gmail back to 2011, actually. Okay. And I read the article published in the New York Times in September of 2011. It was uh, around the release of your book, or it was at least talking about your book, your first one, Street Freak. And the article, I mean, I, I love the article. This is 2011. And it mentioned just one or two lines about a newsletter that you were putting together or that you were involved in called the Daily Dirt Net. And it caught my attention and I emailed you. And I said, hey man, your email inbox must be blowing up after this. I'd love to subscribe. And I didn't hear back for like two months. And then out of nowhere, I get an email from you. <laughs> and it says, Hey, you know, I'm, I apologize. I found your email in my spam box. I would oh, yeah. love for you to be a subscriber. Why don't you start with a free trial and take it from there? Yep. And I signed up and I still am a subscriber and I did some math. You publish basically Monday to Friday. You know, you take some days off. You have vacation days, holidays. But more or less, I have read 2,000 of your issues. <laughs> and I was telling this to my wife yesterday. And she goes, you know, 
I think you spend more time with Jared's thoughts than with mine. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's interesting as an author and, and someone who creates content Right. You when, when you put it, you publish it out there, like p- people who engage in it, it becomes part of their life. And and your voice, your experiences, your thought process has become is part of my life for the last nine years. And so when I had the idea to when we started this podcast, I said, you know, I have to interview this guy uh, because you've been so, so central and one part of my day, one hour of my lo- of my day. I'll read your newsletter, and uh, it's it's one of my favorite times of the day. So thank you for all that work that you've done. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's um, I I don't re- I still don't understand why people want to read what I have to say. <laughs> it's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to start by asking you this question because in one of the issues, actually, you've written about this many times, but I have on my wall next to my, in my desk, in my office, I I have this printout and it's a guide for living. And on that, I keep a lot of the things that you write about in your Mm -hmm. newsletter. And my number one is remember Pat Sajak. Yes. Yeah. Tell me about why Pat Sajak, the idea of Pat Sajak is important. Pat Sajak is a very humble guy. He has a lot of humility. And you think about a guy, he's the number one game show host in the world. And I don't know what he gets paid. My guess is he gets paid like 12 million a year, 15 million a year. We actually found out that Vanna gets paid 4 million a year. (laughs) Okay. So if she's getting paid 4 million a year, he probably gets like 12 or 15. So he's been doing this 34 years. And the magic of Pat Sajak is that he never screwed up the gig, right? Because most people get an ego. Most people get an ego. They're like, I'm the best game show host in the world. And they turn into a prima donna. They turn into Charlie Sheen. They start asking for more money. They get a divorce. They get a drug habit. And like the wheels just come off. Like when, when most people are exposed to that kind of fame and that kind of money, that's usually what happens. And he's just a worker. The guy shows up and does his job, and he's very humble about it. And if you ever follow him on Twitter, like that's kind of a shtick on Twitter too. Like he always, he kind of like rips on celebrities for being stuck on themselves. But the guy just shows up and does his job, and it's it's the best it's the best thing in the world. So Pat Sajak, as far as so you're you're a pretty public guy. You you know I, I'm not written up in the New York Times. So you have multiple newsletters. Uh, you have a couple books out there. How do you then maintain the idea of not blowing yourself up? What are the things that you do? I think about it all the time. You know, for the Daily Dirt Nap, that's my business, and I run it myself, and I don't have to deal with anybody. Um, for Malden Economics, I write some newsletters for them. And, you know, I always want more. I want more subscriptions, more money, more exposure. Um, but I always try to remember that I'm just another bozo on the bus. I'm literally just, it's a job. It's, it's just a job. And, you know, I, I, you probably know that I also started a radio show too. Mm-hmm. 
and the radio show has been very slow to take off. You know, I've been doing this for about nine months now. We're trying to build a large syndicate of stations. We're up to five now. So in nine months, we're up to five stations. And it's been it's been really hard. It's been really hard. But I have these conversations with myself. I'm like, what if I turn into Dave Ramsey? What if I'm what if I'm on 300 stations and I'm like like Pat Sajak, I'm making 10 million a year. Mm -hmm. Like, how am I going to keep my ego in check? Because I just never want to be I never want to be that person. You know, I started listening to the radio show and yeah, there's like 10, right? 10, 20 minute clips, personal finance. I'm going to bet on you on this show because it's it's really great info. And and we're I want to circle back to that later. I I still want to, though, stay on this idea of not blowing yourself up because when I was reading, I, I read uh, Street Freak and it was a it was a awesome book. I, I loved your book compared to uh, all the evils in the world, to be honest with you. I couldn't, I couldn't find that book. I, I needed to ban because if my kids get a hold of that book, <laughs> uh, that thing took, I mean, I read it at night before bed and I was, um, it was, it was a crazy book. So in a good way, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, but a street freak I read, and for me, it was much more useful to kind of hear, get the insights, right? Cause my background is in medical education, emergency medicine physician, and, um, an entrepreneur. Uh, and so hearing about your experiences in the finance world and the thought process is really useful for me. Um, and there's a, a couple quotes here, but one that I, I really liked, uh, the first was, uh, and, and this is you speaking, uh, I wasn't the kind of new money to go off and buy a Benz. I was the kind of new money that was going to squirrel it all away in gold, just in case the world came to an end. I was paranoid new money. And there's a couple, I wanted to ask you, right, because as a doctor, doctors go from making forty, forty-five, fifty thousand $50,000 a year to three, four, five hundred $500,000 a year. And a lot of them are first generation doing this. So how does your experience in the finance industry making, you know, a, a nice salary, you know, what advice would you give to doctors who go from 50,000 to 500,000 or, or 50,000 to 250,000 in a matter of a day? It's kind of like, you know, when you're playing poker, if you have a small stack, you're playing very tight, right? You're playing very tight and aggressive, and then you uh, win a couple of hands, you double up a couple times, then you have a big stack, then you have some chips, and then you start getting loose, you know, and then you just start bleeding chips. And the way I play poker is the way I live my life. Like, even if I get up a lot of chips, I keep playing tight and I don't just like throw chips around and get loose. So there's more value to me in not losing money than there is in making money. And, you know, I took um, I took a, a pretty big drawdown in the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of Lehman stock and that went to zero and there was nothing I could do about it. But, you know, I, I had I had investments in mutual funds and stuff like that. And I took a pretty decent hit. It wasn't terrible, not compared to some people, but I took a pretty decent hit. And I did, you know, at some point I did cut my losses. But um, that experience, you know, I learned from that and I said, I never want to go through that again because ultimately what happens is everything's correlated, 
Okay. So Lehman going bankrupt and the financial crisis and the housing crash and my portfolio will, were all correlated. So all these bad things were happening. And on top of that, I was losing money. Okay. And what I decided was I never wanted to be in a situation where like all these bad things were happening and I was losing money at the same time. So, you know, with this crisis that we're experiencing right now, like Dow Jones goes down 37% in a month. I actually made some money mm -hmm. in that crisis, right? Um, and it, there's just a lot of value in being safe and making some money when everybody else is losing money. So that's kind of how I try to structure my affairs. I want to go back to when you started describing uh, kind of playing poker, playing tight, even when you have more chips where people end up starting to play a little loose. What, what, how, do, right? It's easier said than done as far as, um, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to still be conservative when I have this money. How do you go from the idea of doing that to actually implementing it? I mean, what do you, what's your self-talk? What is it, for example, the reminder of the money you lost that allows you to stay focused and to be disciplined? I mean, that that's you know the discipline of investing is that, that's the huge challenge here well I, I i think the big part of it is a lot of people experience this fear of missing out mm -hmm. right and you know the stock market went up 19% a year for 10 years and people were making a lot of money they were uh 100% in stocks they were in gross stocks they were making 19% a year and i don't really have that bone in my body where I get jealous or envious of other people's success. You know, I say I have my own methodology, I, I have my own strategy, and I'm gonna stick to that strategy. And that's really what it is. Like I don't, I don't get sucked into these trades, you know, because everybody else is doing something. And um, I mean, that's just, it's just kind of an aspect of my personality, you know? So also in the, um, I think it was the epilogue, of uh, Street Freak, you write, and this is talking about the uh, financial crisis, 2008, the housing crisis of 2008, seven, eight, you write, uh, you can press your bet or you can take your money down. And then you, you name two people here, just people that, I don't know, you may have been traders, I'm not sure who they were, but uh, Dick and Joe had been pressing and pressing and pressing their real estate bet and their mortgage bet and hadn't realized any gains. I mean, really, how rich do you have to be? So how rich do you have to be? You know, how do you answer that now? How would have you answered that 10 years ago? There's a great example. If you look at the founders of Instagram, they sold Instagram to Facebook. There was a lot of drama around that, like Zuckerberg didn't consult the board. It was a big risk. Facebook didn't even really have the cash. It was like 30% of their cash. And of course, today, Instagram is worth $100 billion, right? Yep. So a lot of people look at the founders of Instagram and said, you guys are dopes, you sold too early. But, you know, at some point, you know, they, they sold it for a billion dollars, they each probably walked away with a couple hundred million. And at some point, you say, this is, it's just enough, I don't need to continue to take more and more risk. Now, the, the part that you read, Dick and Joe, that's Dick Fald and Joe Gregory. That's the CEO and the COO of the firm, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, they had uh, they had delusions of grandeur, like mm-hmm. Dick Bald wanted Lehman Brothers to overtake Goldman. He wanted to be bigger than Goldman. Mm-hmm. And it's just this concept of like having to have more and more, you know, but you have to do it in a limited risk fashion. Can you give examples of that? Like, what, what do you mean a limited risk fashion? Like if you are, let's say, a doctor uh, and it's January 2020 and you've been making good money for 10 years, you're in the market, you're getting your good returns, you know, and now we're talking in April 2020, which who the hell knows what's going to happen in in the next few months. Um, But what advice do you give to someone like that, a doctor who's been doing well for 10 years? Well, you know, it's funny, I have some knowledge about the dental industry, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this has been happening in the medical field too, but a lot of practices are getting rolled up by private equity and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So you have some, some dentists who are some, you know, pretty good businessmen and they started rolling up practices and they took out a lot of debt to buy these practices. So you have these dental groups with like 20 or 30 or 40 practices and there's just huge amounts of debt. And here we are, you know, like nobody could have foreseen this happening, but business just goes to zero. I saw some statistics Mm -hmm. that even if things get back to normal, like collections are going to be down like 30% next year in 2021. Like it just, it's a lot of risk. It's a lot of leverage. The leverage is really the key. And that's the part, that's the thing with Lehman Brothers is that they just had, I mean, the firm was 35 to one leveraged, you know, so the, the, the risk is in the leverage. So I keep a notebook called Dillianisms, and one of those Dillianisms is after you wrote, after a very long expansion, when financial assets are overpriced, deleverage. Do things like pay down your mortgage. In a downturn, even a small amount of debt can feel like a large amount of debt. Is that what we're in right now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me pivot a little. Uh, because the other big concept that I really love uh, that you talk about, and you actually have a newsletter called The Tenth Man. Give me a background of what The Tenth Man means. Yeah, The Tenth Man comes from the movie World War Z. So I watched, I didn't see World War Z in the theaters. I saw it on like DVD a couple of years later. And basically it's a zombie apocalypse, <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's kind of a silly movie, but mm-hmm. it's actually pretty well done. Yeah, And Israel is like the only country in the world that hasn't been affected by the zombie apocalypse. They built giant walls to keep all the zombies out. And there's a guy in the Israeli government, I don't know what his position was, but they intercepted some communications from India and the Indians were talking about like fighting Rakshashas, which were literally the undead. And this must be a term for something. I don't know. And this one guy was like, no, what if it really is zombies? What if they're actually talking about zombies? So it talked about in the Israeli wars, how they developed this concept of the 10th man, where if you have a group of 10 people, you have one guy that was the 10th man and it was his job to disagree and come up with the alternate scenario. So that's what I try to do in that newsletter. Like I'm always trying to come up with that 10th man perspective. That's really interesting. I, I try and apply that as well to my day to day, I guess, 
also in a business sense. We kind of do it also in emergency medicine when we're caring for patients. I think when we think about what is the thing that that no one's thinking about uh, that may be going on with this patient, is there anything right now that you believe that no one else does? I mean, yeah, you know, in the last week or two, um, I mean, basically, if you go back a couple of weeks, um, you see, because the stock market like discounts very far in advance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I knew that stocks would rally. I mean, well before the infections were under control Mm -hmm. and all I was looking for was a little bit of good news. And what I said was the rate of change of infections was slowing down Mm -hmm. and it's, it's more of just a general feeling, but I think that everybody is very pessimistic about our ability to get this under control. And I think they also misunderstand human nature. I think that people, even if there is a risk of infection, I think at some point people are want to, they're going to want to go back out in the world and take the risk and live their lives. So, you know, when you talk about these people that are looking at six months, nine months, 12 months of lockdown, I just don't, I don't think that's feasible at all. And, you know, I actually think that the economy is going to to begin to restart sooner than people think. Mm -hmm. So that is that is a perspective right now that is not really shared by anybody. So is is the inverse true, though? So if we start seeing an uptick in infections, are you going to see now a decline in prices? Um, I think we would have to have a true second wave. So if you see those charts where we have the first hump. And then it comes down a little bit and then you have the second hump. We actually have like a second wave. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be bad for markets. But abs- absent that happening, you know, honestly, I'm pretty bullish here. Gotcha. All right. We'll find out. We'll see what yeah. happens in the next yeah. uh, six to 12 months here. Okay. So one of the things that I find uh, incredibly interesting about what I perceive in your life is your productivity it appears that you're just, it's nonstop work. And, you know, you uh, have written a couple books. Uh, you do a the newsletter almost every day. And you do, you know, when I was doing research for this interview, I found more and more things about you that I didn't even know you were doing. You know, you have a website, you sell these other books, and it's, it's pretty incredible. I guess I want to ask, you, you know. You forgot about the music. Oh, you know, <laughs> I, it's one thing. That's one thing I, I click on once in a while when you send it out. But yeah, that's the, so you also you you DJ. I know that. Yep. Yeah, and you're trying to create music too. I think during yeah, COVID, sorry, I just started, started producing. Yeah. 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 All right, that's wild. So how do you? You know, I guess I don't want to just ask how do you get so much accomplished. It's more about like, do you have a, a productivity system? Right? Like, do you have a way you prioritize? What are the actual tactics that you may use to get through things, to, to be productive? First of all, I don't have any kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that enables me to, to accomplish a lot. You know, and the other, the other thing is, is that I'll just sort of confess something. Like, my physical health is not that great. <laughs> um, like, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't exercise. I don't take, take care of myself. Like, I'm, you know, I'm fine. I'm healthy. But, um, like there's 24 hours in the day, you know, and actually one of the things I published, this was years ago, I said, there's a list of five things. Okay. And you have to choose three. 
and it's work, family, fun, fitness, and sleep. So those five things, you get to choose three, okay? So I choose work, sleep, and fun. So I don't have family, and I don't have fitness, okay? If I got up at four in the morning to work out, then I wouldn't have sleep, okay? And for me, sleep is super, super important. Like I get eight hours of sleep a night, sometimes more. I slept like nine hours last night. Mm -hmm. And I think that getting lots and lots of sleep enables me to be really, really productive. Like I'm really, really fresh all the time. I'm never tired. And it enables me to work really, really hard. And, you know, in terms of family, like it's, it's just me and my wife and we have a great marriage. But she she's sort of a, you know, she's sort of a type A person, too. Uh, she's a professor. And, you know, we just we just work all the time. So um, it's really about like time management. And that's those are the three things that I've chosen is the work and the fun. I always make time for fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always make time for fun, like the music stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I have to do that. I absolutely have to do that. So. All right. So you, you have your three things. But then how do you how do you then structure your day? How do you choose your priorities? How do you then make that work? Well, you know, I, I do most of my writing in the morning mm -hmm. because I'm I, I tend to be freshest in the morning. So usually I have the daily dirt nap written by around eleven o'clock. And um I do that while I'm fresh. And then I kind of do some admin stuff and process just like subscriptions and stuff like that. And then in the afternoon, I prep the radio show, and that takes, a, that takes a few hours. And then I usually take an hour to make some phone calls and catch up with people. Then I have like an early dinner, and then I'm doing the radio show from 6 to 8. And I, the, after, after the radio show, I'm, I'm not usually doing any work. I'm just relaxing. So Go back to, to the Daily Dirt Nap, which is that's the newsletter that I've been reading for eight years here. When I'm reading it, I, you know, I always ask myself, I was like, how much of this is, you know, is he sitting here, you know, researching? How are you putting this together? Because it's, is a very, the flow is just like you're speaking. And my wife is an author and she has uh, a handful of books out there. And I see her struggling all the time with writers, right? Writers struggle often. The, ability for you to just knock out three pages of writing every day is not common. Now, I know there are, you know, I've read about these great writers out there and they say, what's the trick to writing? And they say, just write. Is that the same for, for you? Do you just say, okay, today I'm just, I'm just going to write what's on my mind. How do you structure what each issue is going to be about? I sort of suck up a lot of information. I, I actually, I use Twitter a lot. And I use it, I use it for news. I use it to get ideas and I use it to get what other people are thinking. Um, and I sort of synthesize that in terms of the actual writing. I mean, that advice is absolutely true. Like if you want to be a writer, then my suggestion is there's three steps. Number one is you turn on your computer. Mm -hmm. And number two is you open Microsoft word. Mm -hmm. And number three is you start writing. Mm -hmm. And it's, and sometimes like I, I'm not one of these people that sits there and stares at a blank page. It doesn't really matter what I'm writing about. I just start writing mm -hmm. and that's how I do it. Has that so, always been the case for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I write, there's, there's some days where I'm writing like 5,000 words a day, 
you know, because I'll write the Daily Dirt Nap, I'll write like the Tenth Man Two, or I'll write something else for Malden, and then I write like a Bloomberg editorial, then I write something else, and then if you can't, I mean the the radio prep, I'm writing stuff for that too. So yeah, there's you know a lot of days I'll be writing five thousand words a day, and I just can't afford to get stuck on stuff. You know, how do you filter all the noise? How do you find the signal in all the noise from the information you're you're researching and reading every day? Honestly, I think I think that's just experience. You know, I just think it's being in the markets for 20 years and just kind of knowing intuitively what's important. I got to tell you, when I started the Daily Dirt Nap in 2008, it was tough in the beginning. It was tough. Like it did not come naturally. Like I would get stuck back then in the early days. And I would say by the time around 2010 came around, I was doing it pretty naturally. What changed? Just practice. What does that mean? Like, can you give an example? <laughs> Like, no, I, I don't have an example. You just do something over and over again, and it just gets to be second nature. What was challenging? The ideas? It's really about finding your voice. You know, and you know what's funny? I just, I just saw the movie A Star is Born. Did you see that? Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that Bradley Cooper talks about over and over again in the movie with Lady Gaga is that you have something to say, and people want to hear it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And... We all have something to say. We all do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and a lot of it is super interesting. Like I'm not really more of an interesting person than you and you're not more of an interesting person than somebody else. Like really like just what I'm blessed with is the ability to communicate, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it was sort of realizing that I had something to say and that people wanted to, to hear it. Who do you turn to to hear? Who are the people that you want to listen to? Nobody. And, no. Is there anyone in finance, let's say? I mean, yeah, like there's there's a handful of people. Um, Stan Druckenmiller is the best investor of all time. So if if he ever has an interview someplace, I'll watch it. I'll, I'll talk to him. But uh, Kirill Sokoloff, who runs 13D Research, he's also very good. See, I don't subscribe to anybody's stuff. I don't read anybody's stuff, mm -hmm. but um, his stuff is very, very good. So if I get my hands on a copy of his stuff, I will read it. But in general, I try not to read other people's opinions mm -hmm. because they pollute my thought process, mm -hmm. you know, because I don't want to be influenced by other people's thoughts. What do you like about Druckenmiller? What, why is he the greatest investor? What attributes, skills, what decisions has he made in general at a high level? that that you respect well one of the things i've been touching on in the newsletter lately is this idea about how you have to separate your personal feelings from trades yeah. you know there's a lot of stuff that's going on in the news right now that people think is wrong like a lot of people think these bailouts are wrong so what people get hung up on is they're like okay this is wrong but they don't they don't put their feelings aside and say, OK, what are the implications and how can I make money off of this? OK, so that's one of the things that he does really well. The other thing that you have to do really well is you have to think about your own thoughts. OK, so step one is being able to think. But step two is actually examining your thoughts and examining what biases biases you might have. And think about how your thinking might be flawed. Do you examine your thoughts and biases? The process you use for that, is it just through writing? Or do you have yeah, another like, system? Do you journal? No, I don't journal. You know what's funny is, 
So I, I play the lottery. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll buy Mega Millions or Powerball tickets. I don't do scratch offs or anything like uh -huh. that. Like it really, I only, I only want to win like a couple hundred million bucks, uh -huh. right? So, uh -huh. so I'll take twenty bucks and I'll buy ten tickets, and then you know, my wife and I, we talk about, okay, well, what are we going to do if we actually win? <laughs> and what I, what I would actually do is, I would become a full time investor, and I would still have the Daily Dirt Nap, but I would send it out for free. Because I still have to have that writing every day because writing crystallizes your thoughts, huh. okay? So, like, the writing is a part of my process and I have to do it. And I recommend that for everybody. I think if everybody, even if they just wrote a page, if they're thinking about ways to invest, they wrote a page of their thoughts, it would crystallize their thinking and it would become a lot more clear what they have to do. You know, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I, I've been journaling on and off since high school. In fact, what was really funny was I had, I used to watch Doogie Howser. Now we're about the same age. You're, yeah. you're, I think a year older than me. I don't know if you watch Doogie Howser, but in Doogie Howser, he would journal at the end of every night. And I was mesmerized by it. I was inspired. So I started journaling. And in high school, every day during lunch break, there was this girl that I liked. And she was in a computer lab and I'd go and sit next to her in a computer lab and I'd just start journaling and I'd always tease her. I'd tell her I'd be writing about her. Well, anyway, back then, you know, we had those hard, those floppy disks, but they were the hard ones. Yeah. That, right. So I actually would save all of my journaling on that. This is 1993. I graduated. So 20 years later. So just last year, I still had that disk and I sent it out to get kind of translated, I guess, to a modern digital text. And I read the journal that I kept all through high school and I sent it to her. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it was really, it was amazing to kind of, you know, cause I'm a very different person in many ways from 20 years ago. And it was amazing to kind of see the thought process and how, and how caught up I was in you know, caring whether a girl liked me or not and caring about all these things. And I also journaled in, in medical school, in residency. That was really a critical part. And then I started journaling again in the last couple of years, and it's been immensely important. So do you not journal simply because you're writing all the time? Oh, I mean, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, I would just, yeah. Yeah. The newsletter is my journal, so right. to speak. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you wrote also in the epilogue of uh, Street Freak, you wrote, how many people in the world get to match their vocation with their avocation? How many people spend eight hours a day doing what they really enjoy? Is that still true for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I will tell you that I'd like to be doing less. The radio show kind of stresses me out a little bit. And it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of work. And also like creating content for that show is really hard because we're covering personal finance topics. And after a while, you run out of stuff to talk about. You know, after doing this for nine months, it's really, really hard to come up with new content. And when I talk about sitting and like staring at the page, like that's when I sit and stare at the page because I'm you know, there's just there's only so many things you can talk about.
The other thing with the radio show is that uh, it'll get easier when I start getting a lot of calls. But yeah. right now I'm not really getting any calls. So I have to create all this content. Mm. So I would like to be doing less. But so what's the as far as personal finance goes? Because honestly, I got into personal finance it became important to me in college, undergraduate college. I grew up in a, I think, pretty similar, uh, kind of similar to you. It's just, you know, nothing. I grew up in New Jersey, um, pretty middle, solid middle class. You know, I didn't have Coca-Cola. I had triple cola on my table. I didn't have Reeboks. You know, I had whatever shoe had a British flag, but it wasn't Reebok. You know, I had no education about money. And my parents were employees. They worked uh, in a nine to five job. Uh, and then I started reading every single book I could get a hold of. And then I, I started kind of learning more and more about finance. Tell me, as far as the the information you give that you talk about, whether it's in Daily Dirt Nap or any of your other newsletters, it's different. And it's what I so appreciate. And And I'm going to try, we'll try and kind of, you know, put my finger on what that is, but you know, I've read Susie Orman, right? Like all the traditional people. And there's only so much you could take from that, that it's like the mainstream personal finance. And what I hear from you and even on your show is a different approach to personal finance that I find much more useful. So what, a question I have for you is, what would you say is the biggest misperception or the biggest mistake that the average person is making right now in regards to personal finance or a mistake? Yeah. The biggest misconception that people have is that it's a million small things that get you to be rich mm. rather than a couple of big things. Mm. In all the per personal finance literature out there, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. It tells people they have to give up coffee. It tells people they have to turn down their thermostat. Um, just do all these little things and cut costs. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you think about this, if you, if you went to Starbucks every day, you went to work. So 250 days a year, three bucks a day, that's 750 bucks a year. If you save 750 bucks a year for 40 years, you would have $30,000. Okay. All right. So if you get a house, if you get a $400,000 house instead of a $300,000 house, now, first of all, you paid a hundred thousand more for the house. But second of all, you will spend $70,000 more in interest over the life of the mortgage, which is basically a hundred years of coffee. <laughs> so it's the big things. It, it's it, the house is number one because you can really financially screw yourself on the house. The car is number two and the student loans are number three. If you get those three things right, the little stuff does not matter at all. You can spend money on coffee. And so the problem is, is that people, they try to cut costs in these very tiny ways and it forces them to give up these small luxuries. Okay. And people find it really hard to give up small luxuries. Like giving up coffee is really hard. It makes you grumpy, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. you can't function without coffee. So you're making it really hard for people to save money. People can give up big luxuries. If you have a 2,200 square foot house instead of a 2,700 square foot house, you're not sitting in the house saying, man, this house sucks. It's a tiny house. 
I hate this house. Like, no, you can actually give up that luxury. You can drive a Toyota instead of a BMW. And you're not like hating the car. People can give up big luxuries, but they can't give up small luxuries. So instead of, well, no one's going to Starbucks right now anyway. (laughs) So we're all saving money (laughs) now. So Warren Buffett said, I remember he once said, you make your money when you buy. Like if you buy something at the right price, you make your money. And to not rely on the appreciation of anything. And if you sell it, maybe you sell it at a higher price. And so house, car, student loans, would you consider those three things to be kind of the 80-20 principle of personal finance, meaning? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And are are the greatest mistakes people make buying too big of a house, the wrong mortgage, buying a car on a loan, and going to an expensive college? Can Can I sum it up there? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now you have an interesting yeah. take on on college and which school to go to. You've written about this a few times. Yeah, I mean, I am a big believer in name brands for schools because I went to a couple of schools that weren't name brand schools and it really held me back. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you get into Harvard, you just go. You just it doesn't matter what it costs. And you'll if it costs you $400,000, you'll be able to make that up over time. Mm-hmm. Okay? But if you go to a second tier school, you, you, you can't spend that kind of money. And, you know, maybe you can take out $40,000 in debt and that's all you can take out. And if you go to a third tier school, then you can't have any debt at all. You can't have any debt at all. So you go into Harvard, Yale, I think, I think you wrote it, you wrote about this top, right? Ivy league schools. You, you get in, you go. Yep. Everything else you, what? Yeah. You have to ration. You know, um, <laughs> so it's an interesting take. I mean, I, I didn't have that question to deal with. I didn't, I didn't have that scenario in my life. So tell me a little about mortgages. You, I was just listening to your show and you were, you were talking about 30 year versus 15 year mortgages and you encourage people to refinance to a 15 year mortgage. That's, yeah. That's for everyone or just some people. Pretty much for everybody. Actually, I mean, a good way to not buy a house that's too big is to only buy a house that you can afford with a 15-year mortgage. I was talking to somebody recently. I, this, uh, this person, it's a friend of my wife's, and she asked, she was asking about rate lock. She was asking if she, she should lock in her rates. And I said, well, have you considered a 15-year mortgage? And she said, well, we can't afford the payments. And I'm, I'm like, already, that's a big red flag. Mm. If you can't, it doesn't matter if you get a 30 year or 15 year, it doesn't really matter. But if you can't afford the house with a 15 year mortgage, then you should probably get a smaller house because that already means you're buying too big of a house. Hmm. I love when you talk personal finance. <laughs> <laughs> These, you know, I strongly encourage all of our listeners. Where can people find you on the radio? Well, the radio, um, the best place to listen to the show live yeah. is, I mean, because it's, it's playing in five places in the country. So just stream it online. Just go to yeah. com, and the show's on from six to eight and you can stream it. You can also call in. Gotcha. I, you know, I think I'm going to start spending some time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be one of your call in guests here. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Who's been the most influential person in your life? Uh, in, in what regard? 
let's say, uh, well, you choose. So maybe in your ambition, maybe in how you, maybe in finance, maybe in music, maybe, you know, who's really influenced you and defined kind of who you are today? There's a writer, uh, his name was Barry Hanna. And he was at, he was in Oxford, Mississippi. I mean, this is a guy, he wrote six, seven, eight books over the course of his career. Not one of these books sold more than 7,000 copies. Mm -hmm. Not well known at all. The guy was an absolute genius, Mm -hmm. an absolute genius, like just an unbelievable writer. And the thing about Barry Hanna was that even though none of his books sold a lot of copies, if you asked other writers who their favorite writer was, they always said Barry Hanna. Mm. And he was, a you know, a lot of all the evil of this world mm-hmm. um, was influenced by him for sure. How do you spell his last name? H-A-N-N-A-H, Barry Hanna. Yeah, I'm going to take a look at that. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 20 or 30 year old self? Well, it's kind of a tough question. Um, you know, when I was 20, I was in the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything kind of worked out. Um, I mean, really, what I, w- what I would have done differently in my life is I would have gone to better schools, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, another thing I regret, I would have studied more in college. I was a bad student <laughs> in college. Like I was, I was a B student, but I'm smart. Mm-hmm. Like I could have, I could have easily had like a three, eight or three, nine. And I was just a complete goofball. And the reason I'm upset about that, it's not really about the grades. There was stuff that I was being taught that I just was not learning. I was not learning mm-hmm. stuff. So there are like these gaps in my education just because I wasn't paying attention. I was one of these kids. I would sit down in class and I would just put my head down in the desk and fall asleep. And I would mm-hmm. just sleep all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was I, so lazy. I'm very familiar so, with that. When did that change for you? It started to change when um, I got interested in finance when I was about 23. And that became my passion because I didn't really have a passion before then. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was a math major in college and I like math, but it wasn't really my passion. And um, once I got interested in finance, and, you know, when I went to business school, when I got my MBA, I got a, I had the I ended up having the highest grades in my class. I had a 4.0 hmm. um, because it was something that I was very passionate about. What so, was the spark that turned you on to finance? Is there anything? Was there anything? Was it a, a moment, an experience, an incident, a conversation, anything that you could recall? Yeah. So I was on a Coast Guard cutter. Mm-hmm. I was in Washington State and there was a guy I was on the ship with. And, you know, we would travel down to like San Diego and he would go buy a newspaper out out of one of those newspaper stands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he'd take the newspaper back to the ship and he would open it up to the financial section. He would start looking at mutual fund quotes. Mm -hmm. So I was like, hey, man, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking up my mutual funds. (laughs) And I'm like, what's a mutual fund? And I was jealous of this guy. Mm -hmm. I was like he knew something that I didn't know about and it sounded really cool. And it sounded like he was making money. Keep in mind, this is like 96, 97. So stocks are doing pretty well. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so then I said, I got to learn about this stuff. So we, we went back to uh, home port and they had a used bookstore and I bought every financial book in the bookstore and I just started reading everything. 
that was how it started. So this became, yeah, I was gonna say, because that's a short time of your life because you, you had to have been obsessed with the knowledge and the learning yeah. and what it was. Yeah. Right? Because you started at Lehman Brothers right around 9-11, right? Yep, 2001. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, you must have been stuck in your house listening to your house music, reading these books. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. You know, I, I, I kind of experienced something similar to that. Uh, what is the best, I, I know we're, we're going to be wrapping up here just any, any minute now. What's the best advice you've ignored or the best advice you were given? I, I mean, look like I've ignored a lot of people's advice. When I was leaving Lehman Brothers to start the newsletter, none of the advice was go follow your dreams, do this, you'll be successful. Mm. All the advice was stay in your job, you're going to get paid a lot of money, like this is the easier path. So I actually kind of got to where I am by ignoring people's advice <laughs> right, and but using my own judgment. Do you think you were ignoring it or you, it was inspiring you to follow kind of your path, your dreams? Was it fuel? No, I don't know. I don't know what it was. It was fuel, but I, I just was dead set on doing what I was going to do. You know, what's been in the last, like, let's say five years, what's been the best investment you've made in yourself? It doesn't have to be you know, the best investment you've made doesn't, you know, doesn't have to be finance. It could be a book you read, uh, a trip you took, but what's been your best investment? Uh, I mean, gosh, there could be a lot. Um, I mean, just on a, on a fun aspect, yeah. um, a cat you bought a cat. You, well, own? yeah, I have five <laughs> cats. I have five cats. The cats are great. Yeah. It, it, this is a little bit complicated, but I was, um, you know, for years I was DJing with something called Ableton. And um, Ableton is this very complex German software, and mm -hmm. I had this controller, and uh, nobody nobody else was using it. It was I was like the only one using Ableton, and somebody told me that I should switch back to the CDJs, which are the CD players. And mm -hmm. so uh, a couple years ago, I switched back to the CDJs, and it's been it's been an amazing decision. It's been awesome. Mm. So this is these this is like the standard club equipment, you know, because I would go into a club and they'd have they'd have this equipment out there. I'd be like, OK, move all this stuff out of the way. I got to put my controller here and it's just a big pain in the neck. And now I can walk into any club and I can play on their equipment. And it's you know, it's it's a lot easier. I don't know. That's kind of a stupid example. But you doing any online DJing now? You know, what's funny is um, I'm trying. I've mm -hmm. done a couple of like Facebook live events. Yeah. I'm basically I'm trying to hook up the output from the mixer into yeah. my laptop, yeah. but I can't do it. So I've just been using the ambient sound from yeah. my sound system and it sounds like crap. Oh, yeah. So I really need to figure out the technology of like how to get, you know, get, get it from the mixer to the laptop, but it's, uh, I haven't been able to do it. All right. So, all right. Well, Jared, I know we, we're going to wrap up here you've given an hour of your time and I couldn't be more grateful afford. I already read the daily dirt nap this morning. So I know you have a lot going on and, uh, you look, you always look forward to Fridays and, uh, you enjoy your weekends. So before we go, uh, where can people find you on the internet? If you're interested in the newsletter and I think you can, I think you can vouch for the newsletter. 
The, I think I already to, have. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think you can go to, you can go to dailydirtnap.com uh, and there's just a button there that just says subscribe and an email comes up and you can just email me personally and uh, I can set you up with a subscription. Um, I also write, I'm, I'm an editorial writer. I write for Bloomberg. So if you go to Bloomberg Opinion, you can find all my editorials. Um, there's a bunch of them. You can go to my DJ website at djstochastic.com. How do you spell that? Uh, D-J-S-T-O-C-H-A-S-T-I-C.com. Well, hey, Jared, I want to thank you for your time. This has been uh, something that I've been looking forward to for many years. Never thought I was going to be able to do it. Got the courage up, reached out, <laughs> and, uh, and and we did it. So, so thank you again, and just know that you're impacting hundreds, thousands of people uh, every day and your thoughts and what you're writing about, uh, whether I don't agree with everything, but it at least sparks the discussion in my mind to look at things in ways that I never thought about. Uh, so thank you for the work you're doing. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you for having me. Have a great one. Hey, guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there's someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.